everyone. I hope you're really well this week. Welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me, your host, Zoe Blasky, where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer, and more alive, whatever that looks like for you. So maybe this podcast is going to inspire you to look at your health and self-care. Maybe it's thinking about your career and making work work for you. Maybe it's looking at your relationships or your relationship with yourself and finally addressing that inner critic and making a commitment to being kinder to yourself. So I chat to all sorts of well-being experts and game changers to help you become your healthiest, happiest and most alive version of you because that is what I think is the most inspiring thing to become for our children. This week I wanted to tell you about an app I've recently discovered and I'm really happy because they are now supporting the podcast. It's called Family Album. It's absolutely free on the App Store and has over 5 million users all over the world. So I was looking for a way to share photos of Jessie and my growing bump with mine and Guy's family, but without clogging up their phones with messages. And that was totally safe and secure. And this app is perfect. It's free, as I said, it's also ad free. And what my family have been loving the most is the one second movies, which the app automatically creates for you. My granny, who is 87, says she cries every time she sees one. It's so sweet. I highly recommend you check it out. Search family album wherever you get your apps from. Now onto this week's episode. Welcome to this episode of the Motherkind podcast with me, your host, Zoe Blasky. Jennifer Petriglieri is the author of a new book called Couples That Work, How Dual Career Couples Can Thrive in Love and Work. Sounds like the dream, doesn't it? Well, I've been doing some research and two thirds of all couples in the UK define themselves as having dual careers. So this is where both partners feel like they have a career path. They are both really invested in their work. So is it possible to have two people highly ambitious on a strong career path and stay happy? So Jennifer studied for five years successful relationships of people who both had careers and what she found was absolutely fascinating. So we talk about it in this episode, obviously. Something that came out is that really couples that work go through three big transitions and the ability to stay successful and happy in your relationship whilst you are both working depends on one thing which is how you navigate these transitions. I cannot wait for you to hear this episode. I think it's going to be a game changer one, much like the Eve Rodsky episode from a couple of weeks back on mental load and invisible labour. I hope you love it. Jennifer was incredibly warm. And when we finished recording, she so sweetly spent a significant amount of time with me chatting through some opportunities that I've got at the moment and timing. And I touch on it in the episode, which you'll be able to hear. But she was incredibly warm and kind and I absolutely loved her and I loved the book and I hope you love this episode. If you did, please rate, review and subscribe. Here it is. So Jennifer, welcome to the podcast. It's good to be here. Oh, it's so nice to meet you. And 
I loved your book. Thank, Thank you for you. writing it. Thank you. It felt like when I read the title, which is how I want to get it right, couples that work, dual career couples can thrive in love and work. I thought, hmm, that's the dream, isn't it? Yeah. I thought, I wonder if that's possible. And that's what we're going to talk about on this yeah. episode. Yeah. So why did you write it? Because you were thriving or because you weren't? A little bit of both. And, you know, I'm an academic by background and I've always studied people's careers And I kept bumping into this thing where people would say to me, you know, if you really want to understand my career, you should understand my partner's career. And I'm part of a working couple myself. And people often talk about their partners as like, they're really supportive, which is great. But in my experience, it was much more complicated than that, right? To combine two careers and a great relationship is challenging. As every good academic does, I like went to the library and thought, you know, has anyone written about this? And there was just really nothing out there. So there was stuff on how to divide the washing up and the laundry, which is all very well. Or there was stuff on power couples who had like everything sorted. I'm like, I'm never going to be like that. And neither is anyone I know. So I thought, you know, if no one's really looked at that, piece around how do we really combine two careers over a lifetime together then I'm going to do that and I'm going to write that book and here we are today. And did you write it specifically for people with children? No so there's plenty of couples in the book who have children and there's also plenty of couples who don't have children and there's also couples who are pre-children. Yeah we're going to talk about that yeah. as well because I think that's and really sort of an empty element. nesters as well. So oh, I, I love think... I love you said that a Sheryl Sandberg quote yeah. had helped us by what was that quote and how did that thinking lead you to want to, yeah. to talk about this? Yeah so I mean, I'm sure many of your listeners all know it. It's like the most important career decision you make is who you marry. And I could hardly disagree with it, but I was also like, and that's it, right? I kiss the frog or like marry Prince Charming and then live happily ever after. I mean, that was just not my experience and not the experience of anyone I know. And there's so many people I researched who had two careers they really passionate about. They were deeply in love with their partner. And yet it was a real struggle. And I think that's what I really wanted to understand is what is that struggle and how can we get through it in a better way? Mm. So tell us a bit about, so people get to know you, what were some of your struggles? Because you and your husband are very, very successful in your respective careers, aren't you? Yeah. And I think like, you know, we had a whirlwind romance. So we got together, we moved in a week later. A week? Oh yes, we knew. Wow. And then we got married. I've never heard of a week. Yeah, we got I married. I thought we were punchy at nine months. But... Wow, well, I beat you, beat you. <laughs> yeah. No, so we got married a year later and a year after that we had two kids in very quick succession. So 16 months apart, the children are, which is wonderful and also crazy making as any of your listeners who have two kids who are very close together will know. We entered this period really quickly in our relationship where I'd made a major career transition. So I was in corporate, very successful corporate career and really decided to change the academic world. So I was in the middle of my PhD, two under twos, Jean-Pierre is building his career. And to be fair, he is great, right? He did loads of nappies. He washed, cooked, cleaned everything that makes a perfect husband. And we were still hanging on by the skin of our teeth. And, you know, I got to that point where many, many young mothers do, which is like, I just cannot carry on. You know, something has got to give. Talk about your 3am moment. Don't yeah, you? yeah, yeah. So, you know, March, 3am, you know, seventh wake up of the night, whatever. And just felt, I just cannot do this anymore. You know, and I said to Jean-Pierre, my husband, like, I just need to take some time out. And I was expecting him 
to, you know, feign a bit of resistance, be like, oh, well, yes, that's a good idea. Yeah, because it um, might have made his life easier. It would have made his life easier. But instead, he said, there's no way I'm letting you do that. And I have to admit, in that moment, I was not very pleased. I was expecting a bit more support. But he was right, right? If I'd have dropped out at that point, my door to academia would have closed. Like, there would have been no career path for me. And I'm also here promoting a book, so he must have got something right. But then the question is, like, is it because he's an amazing husband? He is an amazing husband. But it's also because we'd really taken time to discuss what are our professional ambitions. And so in that moment, he was holding me, I guess you could say to my ambitions, when my ambitions were failing me. And it was only because we'd had those discussions that, that came about. And that's what I found in my research. The couples which really thrived were ones who were very, very clear around the principles of their relationship, right? What really matters to us? What are we going for? And what do we need to hold each other to and support each other in achieving? You talk about this psychological contracting, which sounds like that's what that was. You sort of did that inadvertently, didn't you? You talk about it on, were you on honeymoon and you sort of sat down? No, we were on our third date. Third date? Yeah. And you sat down and wrote what was important to you. Yeah, and I think, you know, what I find in my research is every single couple has a psychological contract. Every couple has a deal. Most couples just don't discuss it, right? They just fall into it. And the couples that do really well are those that discuss, like, what is the deal between us? Tell me what that looks like. How does someone do that? So it's really about talking about things in three areas. So one is what really matters to us. So what are the things we're going to pursue above everything else. And that might be like a specific career goal one or the other of you have. It might be, how can we work enough that we achieve our goals, but not enough so we have enough time for these things outside of work. It might be something about, right, what kind of couple do we want to be? You know, we want to be a couple who's really embedded in our community. Having those principles, those kind of yardsticks laid down is really important because this is what we measure our life by. These are the things that, you know, if you're not careful, you wake up five years later and you're like, this isn't where I wanted to be. You hear it all the time, don't you? Just you, hear you just it sleepwalk. It's so easy to, to sleepwalk and I think through life because it's so busy. And particularly at that period where we have younger children. Yeah. From kind of first pregnancy through to when the oldest one is six, seven years old. Well, you pick it up, is, drop off feed, oh, right? Sleep, pick up, drop off, and suddenly you've lost. And not you, lost, but you might have lost sight of what's important. And I think that's what happens. I saw that time and time again. We've lost sight of what happens. And then we wake up and suddenly feel like, my goodness, six years, seven years, eight years have gone. And this is really not where I want to be. And it's not that we regret the children or anything like that, but it's like, if I was more planful and if we had a better direction set, we would be in a very different place. So you talk about these three areas and I'm a coach. So this is the sort of thing that I do day in, day out. And I see the benefit of it. So these three areas are values, boundaries and fears. Talk us through those so that someone who's listening can jot these down and go and do it with their So the values is really what I've just been saying. What really matters to us? And you need to be very specific, like a value is not spending time with family how much time what does that look like is that with the wider family is that with the nuclear family you know how does that juggle so this is really important because this essentially gives you a guide to what do I need to pursue and what can I let go of and as every working mother will tell you it's the letting go of stuff that's really hard so that is the first area what I hear a lot of is 
couples whose values don't align. Did you see that in the research? Yes and no. So it's very normal that some of the things that matter to you will not matter to me. And there's nothing wrong with that. But there's also got to be some common ground in the middle. So I think it's really unrealistic to expect your values and your partner's values to entirely overlap. That would almost be a little weird. I think what you're looking for is enough common ground that makes it work for both of you and a deep understanding of the values your partner has that you don't have and thinking, how can I support those and vice versa? Which is what your husband did for you at 3am. Exactly. So maybe, you know, if we take you as a case study, you know, one of the things you really wanted to do was go independent. Yeah. Now, I don't know what your, is he your husband? or your Yeah, husband? he's yeah. my husband, yeah. Your husband, like, I don't know if he wants to go independent. It's irrelevant, right? His value might be something very different. But the fact that he knows that and can support it is really important to you and really important to the couple. And then you'll have some things that are in common. People fall down in one of two directions. And sometimes when I talk to younger people who aren't mothers yet or aren't quite at our stage of life, they're like, you know, I have this checklist of 120 things and the perfect man needs to tick all of them. That's never going to happen, right? Likewise, if you're with someone who the values are too divergent, that's not going to work either. So you're looking for some common ground, but not exact matching. So that's the first area. The second area is boundaries. And the way I think about this is what are the lines you're unwilling to cross? I love that phrase. Yeah. I think it's really great because it's exactly that. It's what am I not willing to do? Yeah. And I think these can be like for your listeners, it's like, what does that mean? It might be like a time boundary. How many hours a week do you have to work for it to really start negatively impacting me and the family? That's a line, right? It might be about work travel. How much work travel do you have to do that it's just not going to work for our family? It might be geography. Are there places that if even if we get offered the best job in the universe, we are not going to move there? Maybe it's an area of the country. For those of your listeners who may be international movers, maybe there are certain areas of the world where you're not going to consider. It might be a line around your relationship, right? Or around extended family. You know, what is so much that it encroaches on your nuclear life? These lines are so important because they essentially create the field that we're going to play on. And if we get opportunities outside that field, it's just a no. And it's really interesting because, you know, especially in the UK, we're always taught from children that more choice is better, right? But the research shows the opposite. So the more options we have, the more harder it is to choose and the more regret we have for those choices. So what these lines do is essentially make choice easier. So that's the second area. And the third area is fears, which I'm sure you know from your coaching is much harder for people to talk about. But it's so important in couples because what I saw in the research is two things happen. Either people are really worried about things which are not even on their partner's radar. So let me give you an example. There's one couple and the couples I studied, you know, I'd work with them over time. And and I did a hundred couples, didn't you? Around the world, gay, straight, all All different different demographics. And I would always interview them separately to really understand their views of the other and things. And I was talking to them and they're a lovely couple. They'd been married a few years and they were at that point where they were thinking of having children and they were having a lot of conflict over it. And I spoke to her and I'm like, what's going on? And she said, well, the thing is he travels Monday through Thursday. So I know as soon as the baby's going to be born, I am going to essentially be full-time responsible so she's like I really just want to push my career as much as I can before we get there like I really want kids but I'm just trying to delay it I thought I get that right then I speak to him and he said I just can't understand what we're dilly-dallying for I've already found the job I'm going to take as soon as she's pregnant 
So I can be office-based all the time because there's no way I'm missing out on the fun of being a hands-on dad. But they've never communicated that. They've never communicated it. And I've stepped back and thought, how is this possible? But of course, she was so afraid this would happen. She didn't want to say it in case it came true, right? And he's so sure it's a non-issue. Why even bring it up? Yeah, yeah. So obvious to him that he wouldn't do that. Yeah. And this happens time and time again in couples. One of us get a bee in our bonnet about something that just is not in reality. So that's one thing that can happen. Sounds like you're a couples therapist for them. Are you then allowed to say what the other has said or are you all under confidentiality? No, it's under confidentiality. So no, it's very tricky as a researcher. (laughs) I was like, you maybe want to talk to them about that (laughs) without saying anything. But I think the other thing is, of course, there are fears that might come true, right? So if I take my example, my husband's from Italy and for all of your listeners out there, Many of us are now in cross-cultural relationships, whether that's with someone who's actually from another country or maybe your partner's family. It just has a very different family culture from your own. And we know, all of us know, that can really create conflict in the relationship. Like, how do we manage the boundaries between the expectations of your family and my family? And talking through those fears are really important because if we understand them, we're much more sensitively managing them. So what tends to happen when there's conflict around those things in couples is it's almost always unintentional. I just don't understand that it's not okay for you to do X or not do Y. And that's the other reason why it's really important to understand our fears is that if our partner really understands the things we're worried about, they're much more likely to be, you know, super sensitive around them and really help us through, which manages the conflict in the relationship before it pops up. So how does someone do this? Do they sit down? I mean, obviously it's in the book and hopefully people will buy the book and see it, but do they sit down and write these out? And can you do this at any point? Because we're talking a bit about before we get into it, but can you do this when you're in crisis and it's... Yes. The proverbial's hitting the fan. Yeah, so let me me say ideal circumstance and then crisis. So the ideal is, first of all, you don't do this once. This becomes a habit becomes the fabric of your relationship, right? That you talk about these things. But I think, imagine, you know, you've just got together. The ideal is you sit down fairly early on and you may take a notepad each and write some notes. But the ideal is that you share both your thoughts on this, not with the idea of making complete common ground, but really just understanding the perspective of the other and obviously trying to find some common ground, but not trying to squash yourself into a box. And then you make it part of the conversation of your relationship. Now, some couples, you know, revisit these conversations, you know, on anniversaries, things like this. We do that. Yeah, they're also quite nice conversations to have, like which direction, who doesn't want to talk about the important things? We made it a bit of a joke and it's like a review on each other, like a work review. Oh, well, maybe that's a little bit far. Exactly. I'm like, (laughs) you've taken this a bit far. But it is that conversation on our anniversary, what's going well, you know, because I'm a coach, I'm like, what's gone well? What what hasn't gone well? But I also think, who doesn't want to talk about the things that really matter to them in life. Like we all crave those conversations. So ideally you make a habit of it. Actually, there was this lovely couple. They were an older couple that actually their last child was about to leave home and I'm talking to them. And what's lovely about interviewing partners separately is like they tell you the same stories and I say, I bet she'll never tell you this, but super sweet. And they have every Saturday morning, they have a bakery meeting. So every Saturday morning, they go to their local bakery for an hour. They sit in the same table. They order the same like coffee and croissants. And they just have an hour, just the two of them, no phones, no nothing, 
to like not talk about logistics, right? But to talk about their week, how they're feeling about things, what matters to us, what are we aiming for? And they both said it's the most precious hour of the week. Mm. Like who can't afford an hour a week? I mean, if we cannot afford an hour a week, something dramatic is going And I wrong. love that you talk about this. It's so easy, and we're going to come into the phases, but it's so yeah. easy in that first phase where we might have young children and yeah. to just, we do this, a lot of our conversations are on practicalities yeah. not enough on the level above the practicalities like how are you feeling what's really going on it's yeah. so easy for it to veer into it I is. can't make football you need to do that pick up can you do that drop off can you and it's a real trap because on the one hand as any mother will tell you that stuff needs to get done yeah however what I found time and time again is I talked to couples and they were like we're always talking about this I'm like, yeah. And the reason you're always talking about that is because you haven't sorted out the principles of your relationship. If this was just about, I don't know, syncing Google calendars and working out an Excel spreadsheet, we wouldn't be here, right? None of us would be talking because it would be easy. The reason it's not easy is not because of the practicalities. The reason it's not easy is because most couples haven't sorted out what's their deal. Yeah, the shared values, the boundaries and the fears. Exactly. And once that's sorted, of course, the stuff we need to sort out, but it's easier to understand why are we doing this? Why are we splitting it this way? And then it becomes less of an issue. So of the couples that you interviewed, these hundred, did you find that the people that were doing this had far more successful, this word thrive that's in the title? Definitely. Now, nothing immunizes you against life, right? Stuff happens. Kids are sick parents die, you know, we get laid off from our job, stuff happens. But what I found was the couples who'd really done this work on the principles of their relationship, they just weathered the storm a lot better. And they tended to be more successful. And when I say that, they're like happier in their career and their relationship than other couples. Now, it doesn't mean everything's easy all the time. It doesn't mean nothing bad happens, but it just means overall, they're a lot happier in their direction. And when things come along, like the transitions I talk about in the book, they're just that bit easier to manage. Mm, It's almost like laying the foundations, isn't it? And interestingly, what I'm just thinking of is, you know, when a lot of the previous generations would get married in church, church used to do some of this foundation setting, didn't it? Or certainly in the UK, you would have to go to six sessions. I mean, I'm not religious, but I know friends that had to do it. Yeah, yeah, Six sessions of pre-marriage. How do you feel about money? How do you feel about children? How do you feel about... Absolutely. And Guy and I, because we weren't getting married in a religious context, we went to a therapist and did that. Yeah. And that really helped us. It really helps. But the problem is many couples then box those conversations and 20 years later, it was like, oh, yeah, when we got married, we talked about those things. Okay, so you're Rather saying really, it. it's got to become a habit. How do you and your husband do this? So we're a bit like you, but we're academics. So sad old us at the start of the academic year and at the start of the new year. <laughs> and you've got we your new diary. We've got your new diary. <laughs> we tend to revisit these conversations, but we also, as things pop up, talk about them. So, for example, I travel very little with work but the last few weeks I've been traveling absolutely loads because of the book launch and we've had a conversation around like how does that fit in with the deal we have and you know it's a unique period and how are we going to support each other in that so I think it's about developing the habit but also not just thinking okay it's not the first of January yet so we're not going to talk about it it's like as and when and I think it becomes just part of one of the things you talk about just like you talk about the weather and picking up kids from football and everything else you know why shouldn't this be 
just part of the normal run of our conversations. Mm, you're so right. You're so right. And I've had this recently because I've got an opportunity to write a book. And I sat down with Guy and I said, this is what I think it would mean for yeah. our family. What do you think? Because that's part of being partnership, isn't it? I cannot expect and him to support me. that is the me. right conversation. It's not, this would be great for me. Can you stomach it? Yeah. It's what would this mean for our family? And that's where so many people go wrong because the reality of being in a real couple is nothing either of you do is independent of the other nothing and that's a good thing especially with children especially Especially with children children. but that is a good thing because what it means is that every opportunity one or other of you has is potentially an opportunity for the couple and if you can frame it like that and think through these choices in terms of what might you doing a book get him benefit him and part of that might be a happier wife right and that is still a benefit to him but part of it might be well I'm going to have this amazing experience watching you go through this process as a couple we're going to learn all sorts of things you know it's going to be exciting it's something the kids will be proud of and framing it like this is very different from well that's going to take you a lot of time which means I will have to do more childcare. it's just a different did you, way of did looking you at see it. couples or have you got some words of wisdom you can offer to people who's husbands or partners or you know whatever the makeup of the family is aren't supportive so say it was my I mean Guy's luckily supportive but say it's my absolute dream which is to write a book and Guy having had that conversation might have said to me it's not going to work for us what happens then which I hear a lot actually yeah so I think first of all it's really important to get away from that I want to write a book immediately and get back to the real principles, like what's really important to me in general. Because very often what I found in couples was the day-to-day, I just can't take you doing that right now, was on the one hand, it's easy to say, oh, you're so unsupportive. But it wasn't actually on the surface about being unsupportive. It was just kind of feeling overwhelmed right now and not understanding how important that is to someone in the grand scheme of things. Okay, so it's almost like Simon Sinek, come to your why first. Yes, exactly. And I think so often, it's so easy to then blame our partners to say, I want to talk to you about resentment and what we do when we're feeling resentful. Yeah, but what often happens is we just go with the ask rather than the why is this important and how does this fit into the grander scheme because we're so anchored in thinking what's happening next week, next month, next year. We don't take it thing back, but I have very rarely encountered a situation where a couple have sat down and talked about the long term, what's really important to me and not been able to come to some kind of agreement. Now, it might be... I really support that. The thought of you doing it in the next six months is really frightening to me. But you did say that to start with. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But if it's a year from now, I'm on the boat. He said, why now? Yeah. He said, why now? And that's yeah. a fair pushback. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Especially with the size of your belly right now. Well, that's what the, that's what the conversation <laughs> was about. But I yeah. think coming back to that why... Is really, really important. important. So I want to talk to you about these three phases because yeah. I think this is fantastic. So something that you saw in your through your research, a pattern that you saw is that as couples we go through three big transitions yeah. or phases, you yeah. call them. Can you talk to us about what those are? Yeah. And how this contracting our values, our boundaries, and our fears might change through those three. Yeah. So first of all, 
when people talk about working couples, it sounds like it's always a nightmare, right? There's this and this and this. And that's not what I found. What I found was there were periods where it was really challenging. And then periods where, honestly, it was a relatively, relatively smooth ride. And these periods, or what I call them in the book, transitions, coalesced around three kind of life stages. And the first one at the stage you're in now, really, the first transition happens early on in our relationship, whenever we get together, whether we're in our 20s, our 40s, our 60s. And if you think back to those early days of your relationship, you're essentially on parallel tracks, right? You're building this career, you've got your set of friends, and you've layered on top this wonderful relationship. And it's amazing, and it never lasts, right? What happens is all of us eventually hit a point where we have to make some hard choices, Now, that might be the arrival of the first children, right? End of parallel living. We all know that. It might come before that. It might be that one of you gets offered, I don't know, a job on the other side of the country. End of parallel living. Do I follow you? Do we go our separate ways? And I might not be able to work there. I might not be able to work. So essentially, this first life event we hit, which might be in the first year of our relationship, it might be in the fifth or sixth year. It's not necessarily in the early days. Really presents this question, how are we going to make this work? And by it, I mean, how are we going to make our two careers work and our relationship? And it's a time which is quite panicky for couples, right? Because we may have been together a while and everything's been going going great. And suddenly we're facing this horrible choice. Or it can make you think you're with the wrong person or this isn't right. This isn't how I thought it would be. Exactly. And all those thoughts tend to go through people's mind. And it's interesting you say that because I think part of the reason those thoughts go through our mind is when we think of our careers, we're used to this logic of I'm going to have to work at it. I'm going to have to invest. I'm going to have to think about what my vision is for our career. When we think about our relationships, we're still in the days of the Disney movies, right? Where we kiss the prince and then everything's great. And if it's not great, there's something fundamentally wrong with our relationship. And really what my book is about is what is the work it takes to invest in the relationship to make it work as well. And I think this is the first time we really have to do that investment and do this work in the first transition. And what tends to happen to couples at this stage is they really focus on the practicalities, which is completely understandable, right? Childcare, you know, spare bedrooms, geography, money. Lots of building projects. Lots of building projects. And all these things are important. Mm. But as we just talked about, If you just look at the practicalities, we all know what happens. You just fall into that pattern, pattern, pattern. Five years later, you wake up and like, resentment breeds there, I think. Resentment breeds there. And resentment breeds for one reason only it's because the power in the couple has become unbalanced. Absolutely. And what I mean when I say power in a relationship is who gets to have the shot to pursue their dreams? And very often in the early days of a relationship, it's equal, right? We're really invested in each other. We're super supportive. And then something happens, whether it's children, geography, and that starts to become unbalanced. And the couple works on behalf of one of its members. So one person is starting to make sacrifices and the other is getting the gains. Now, never in my experience have I seen someone go into a couple saying, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to grab all the power. This doesn't happen. It happens through those little choices that we sweep under the carpet. So let's take, you know, your like situation. Like you, normally, if you'd have quit yeah. at that 3am moment, that would have been your power Absolutely. dynamic. Absolutely, power dynamic going, that he's pursuing what he wants 
and I'm not. And then the next decision and the next decision. And it's not even about necessarily big decisions like that. It might be around, I mean, let's take your situation. One person wants to go independent and follow their dreams. And at the beginning, that's okay for the other person, the other partner, but then they may want to do that. But well, now I'm the stable breadwinner and I don't know, my partner's income is not that stable. So now I'm boxed in and, you know, these dynamics unfold over time and they almost always unfold unconsciously, right? None of us kind of maliciously go into a relationship, but then we wake up six months later and one is resentful and the other hopefully is feeling guilty, maybe not feeling guilty. And this is where things really start to go wrong in relationships. But just with a motherhood lens on this, this is so hard because it still is predominantly the women that seem to downplay their careers at least for a short term yes in order to look after the children how does this all yes interplay and then we've got guilt yeah yeah, yeah. should I have a nanny or but I've had this child because I want to be with this child but I still have my dreams and we need to step back because when I say you get a shot to pursue your dreams I don't just mean career I mean whole life dreams right and I think it's really important to think some of your dreams might be actually spending time at home with the kids. So I remember one couple I spoke to and she felt that she had no power in the couple. She was actually a CEO, right? So she had much more money than her partner. She had on paper a much more successful career, but she'd always wanted to spend time with the kids, right? And she'd not been able to because she'd been the breadwinner and she'd been underwriting his dreams, which were in entrepreneurship. And so I think we've got to get away from this thought that our ambitions are always career. Our ambitions are usually multifaceted, right? We have some career ambitions. We have some, if I can put it that way, ambitions or dreams around our family. Yeah. We might have some dreams around other stuff, right? Community, so giving community, back, charity, giving back. Yeah, making a difference. You know, so I remember I love playing the piano. And, you know, of course, when the kids were little, I didn't do anything. And then recently... I started piano lessons again with the kids. And it's like, I just feel like I'm realizing this dream. So I think we need to be careful on what we mean by a dream. Equally, you're right, right? We know that women tend to pick up the lion's share. But I think we've got to be nuanced around that. That's not a bad thing if that's what you really want. Mm. It becomes a bad thing if you feel you're doing it out of guilt right? My child's going to be scarred forever if I don't do this, which we know from research is rubbish. It's not true. Yeah. It's not true. Or you do it from social expectations, right? That oh yeah, I, should, I should suck this up for a few years and then we'll be fine. That's when it becomes the problem. It's not the problem if that's what you really want to do. So what I'm hearing is two things. First thing is we've got to be clear about what those dreams are. Yes. And I've coached hundreds of women and I always ask that question and most 98% of the time I get it, I don't know. Yeah. So I think it's just being clear on what those dreams are. And I are. think this is why it's important for us to have those conversations before we have children. Because what can happen, I mean, if you think back to when your daughter was younger, or if the, your listeners have very young children, I ain't got time to think about my dreams. Like if I can get to the end of the day and have a shower, it's a miracle, right? I think that's why it's important to think through them before. And this is what happened with Jean-Pierre and I, because at that moment at 3 a.m. on that March morning, I had no ambition. I just wanted to go to bed. And and that's held you to your dream. Yeah, yeah. But I do think for those who haven't talked about them, it's never too late, right? Invest in yourself and take some time to think about 
What does that look like? And of course it shifts over time. Mm. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing that I think is important to pull out what you're saying is then being true to that. Yes. And holding each other to it. I think part of our role as real partners to each other is to hold each other to our commitments, even when the other person doesn't want to. What happens if those have changed? Values change, like you say, year on year. Of course they do. But I think there's a difference between a natural evolution and a moving feast. And I think often in those moments of stress, we can be like, oh, I didn't really mean that. Really? You know, the reality is our values do change, but they change fairly slowly. Yeah, and they don't tend to change hugely fundamentally. No. Of course, we know they shift when we have children, which is natural. But if your partner comes back to you one day and is like, oh, I'm not bothered about that anymore, you should be very suspicious because it's probably they're extremely stressed or, you know, they're feeling guilty or something People else. say it all the time, don't they? I'm just going to quit and go and live on a tropical island. Yeah. It's like that stress. Exactly, exactly. Would you really like that? Probably not. We know. like going to the tropical island for holidays. Yeah, I'm but, not you know, sure I'd want that for Even my, if you were there for six life. weeks, you'd be running around. So what's the second transition? So the second transition comes a little bit as the stage I'm at now, (laughs) really comes at mid-career. So if we think of the first two decades of our career in our 20s and 30s, we're striving, 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 right? We're building our career, we're building our relationships, some of us are building a family as well. And it's crazy days. (laughs) It's a time when the path we take is a bit of a mix, honestly, of what we really want to do and social expectations, right? Your parents told you this would be good for you. Your peers were all going into this industry, so that seemed like a good idea. All your friends are having children, so oh, we better hurry up now's the time. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, all these people around us, they love us, they want to support us. They're not pushing us in a bad direction, but we're often being pushed in a direction that's not quite our own. And what happens at that mid-career point is it's a natural point where people start to feel, "Mm, maybe this isn't quite my track. And it's also a point where we have a lot of our career left, but we start to feel the passage of time. So we no longer feel we have all the time in the world. So there's more of a sense of urgency when we get to that mid-career phase than we had in our 20s and 30s. And this is very stressful for couples because when we see our partner wrestling with those, you know, what do I really want out of my life questions? It can be really threatening because there can be this sense, well, goodness, if they're questioning their career and direction, is this about me? Is this about the relationship? Is it my fault? It's very stressful for couples And it creates a lot of turmoil. And in fact, we see a peak in the divorce statistics around this type of mid-career. And we can really see it's a classic stage where couples can fail. Now, what's going on here psychologically is that the support we need from our couples is shifting. So if we think in our early years as a couple, and maybe in our years when we have small children, when those crazy years... The support we need and the support we all love is this kind of tea and sympathy support, right? Where I'm going to plump up your self-esteem. I'm going to make you feel good about yourself. I'm going to provide this really cozy environment. And it's lovely. And it's just what we do not need at this second transition. Because if we think of this second transition where we're questioning our direction, the future, we've got to get out of the comfort zone, right? The only way we can answer those questions is by getting out of the comfort zone and taking some risks 
experimenting with new things, exploring new options. And what that kind of tea and sympathy support does is keep us in that comfort zone. So what I found is that couples who work through this transition really well shift that support to what I talk about in the book as becoming a secure base, which is a term from attachment theory. But it essentially means instead of a loving cuddle, it's a bit of a loving kick up the ass. So it's that I'm supporting you, but if you're wrestling with these questions, get out there and do something about it. So it's a real push for the partner to explore, but it's really counterintuitive because our natural reaction, if we're feeling a bit wobbly about our relationship, is to hold the other person close. But what we really need to do at this stage is almost push them away in a loving way and be like, okay, go out there, try something new, go explore. And it's a really hard tension. And the financial impact of that can bring a lot of fear. And I know that when I'm in fear, I want to control. Yeah. And so it's very counterintuitive, but I found that the couples who could get the courage to say, okay, I know this is what you need. I'm going to steal myself and kind of see you do this. Well, that's a steam in a relationship, isn't it? Yeah. Where you say, you go off and I will handle whatever you come back with. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, what they come back with is never as bad as you think, right? (laughs) I know people joke about... I'm just going to go to a different bank. Or I'm just going to... Yeah, yeah. and people joke about, you know, the desert island, but there are very few people who go for the desert island, you know? It's really this model of supporting our relationship that needs to change. And when we come back to the psychological contract... It's a time when our psychological contract shifts. So there's a lot of work to to do in the couple to rethink, okay, has what's important to us shifted? Has our values shifted? You know, what do we need to do because of that? It's so fascinating about the divorce statistics. And I can really see that. I'm just thinking about some people that I know in that phase who are going through exactly this. And it's really interesting. And it's sad as well. I mean, I'd speak to couples who'd been doing great, 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 great. And suddenly their relationship feels really suffocating. And it's because they're in this old model of support where psychologically I feel this real need to go out and explore and you're holding me close. And you saw that a lot in mothers, didn't you? And women who perhaps had the dream, as we were talking about earlier, was to raise the young family. Perhaps they were now at secondary school and didn't need as much day to day. And you you saw that there was a release of this ambition. Exactly. And, you know, I'm at a stage where my kids are nine and 11. So I really identify with this. You know, the world changes, right? It's a completely different relationship with them, relationship with your partner. And for the first time in a long chunk of time, you have more freedom, you have more time for you, right? You time. And I think a lot of these things that you've kept a lid on, really come up with a vengeance. Have you found that? Well, you've written a book. Exactly. Was that, was that one of your, yeah, your mid-transition I mean, dreams that you've realised? Yes. So I worked part-time before the kids started school. And in France, kids start school at three. So they start full-time school at three. But I worked part-time. And then probably for the next three years, until my daughter was six, seven, who's my youngest, I would work what I had to, but I certainly wouldn't work anymore. Do you know what I mean? So I sort of put in my hours and, and I was still, my career was going well. I was doing some good work, but I always wanted to take on a meteor project like the book, you know, and now I can. And now the kids are at an age where it's exciting for them. You know, they see mummy on TV, TV (laughs) which of course that wouldn't have been the reaction when they were three. No, they would have been wailing because you weren't there. So I think it's a natural piece of the life cycle And then what happens in the third transition? Yeah. So the third transition happens later. And if we think about motherhood, it tends to coincide with when our children fly the nest. Now, 
you know, sometimes when we have young children, it's like, I cannot wait for that day. But when it comes, it feels very different. So there's a real sense of loss at this time. You know, I'm no longer this hands-on mother. I'm no longer the bright young rising star in the organisation. All these social roles are changing. And there can be a real quite profound sense of, you know, who am I now, right? Now I'm not all these things. At the same time, there's a huge opportunity that we've never faced before. So if we've played our cards right, we're probably a lot more financially independent than we were in our early 20s, you know, early 30s. Most of us will still have a good chunk of our careers left. We'll still hopefully be in good health, lots of energy. Because people having children later, it's going to be a while until we're grandmothers. So we've got this period where suddenly we have this freedom we just haven't had since we were mid-twenties. And it's so exciting. And at the same time, careers are really shifting, right? So if you think back to maybe your parents' generation or certainly your grandparents' generation, when they got to that stage, they were essentially on the down ramp to retirement. They're going to be with the same organisation. We know the pattern. That's not happening anymore. And there's hugely more options than there were before. You know, we know with the gig economy, right? freelance working, portfolio career, some entrepreneurship. There's all sorts of options that no previous generation in history have enjoyed. Yeah, I read a statistic the other day that over 60s were responsible for most of the new business startups in the UK. And this is really interesting because it's fascinating. It's fascinating. And it's the first time in history that a new trend in the working world has benefited the older generation more than the younger generation. First time in history. Yeah, because think about it. The rise of portfolio careers and, you know, freelancing is great. So if you're my stage, if you're early mid-40s with two kids in school, a big mortgage, that is a risky move. Very risky, yeah. But if the kids have flown the nest, you're putting them through university, maybe you've paid off the mortgage, that's suddenly a lot easier. And so it's exactly where the statistics are going. In a funny way, that generation, which often we think of as, oh, they're a bit behind and things, they're reaping the benefits. Oh, I had an amazing woman on the podcast. She was 65. She'd been a journalist all her life and she started a tech business, yeah. matching clients with therapists. She went on this boot camp in Silicon Valley. She said she was the oldest by 40 years. Yeah. And she's absolutely loved it. She's yeah. 65. Yeah. Started, started and so, a tech business. so there's a lot of excitement to come. But for couples at this transition, it's like, how can I work through the loss, which is real. It's a real sense of time is passing. And the person I used to be is not the person I am anymore. And I think it's important we take that seriously. Did you see people feeling like they had unfulfilled dreams that maybe they had lived someone else's life you hear about that a lot yeah so there's two things yes that and also and this is a warning to all the young mothers out there there were many relationships that were on the rocks now because when my parents divorced is when my me and my brother left because couples have poured everything into the project of raising the children and when the children leave there's an empty shell left And that can be very difficult. And I think this is a real warning for younger parents now that the children cannot be the thing that keeps you together. There's got to be things on the side. Now, you know, those listeners with a two-year-old would be like, well, it's all right for her to say that. And there are sometimes years where you just have to get through it. But very quickly, once you're out of those crazy years, you've got to be developing some 
shared passions or with checking your in is this still the right relationship yeah. for me yeah and there's nothing wrong if it's yeah. not yes but it's having that as we we're talking about having that check-in with yourself yeah. and the other yeah. and coming to that realization yeah. and really building a relationship that's about you and not just about the kids and in fact you know some people are like oh it's got to be about the kids but you're serving the kids a lot better if you have a stable base of a relationship where well, you're modeling you're their blueprint yeah. so yeah you- then if you're pouring everything into them and so that was the other thing that can happen at this we can really wake up and be like you know I had some people say to me you know I woke up in the bed and I looked across and would just think who is this person in the bed with me you know I don't even know them anymore Wow. I think that's what happened to my parents. Yeah. yeah. So interesting. Yeah. So interesting. So is there anything that we, we've talked about so much? Is there anything we haven't talked about that you think it's really important for my listeners to know about your research or the book? Or so I think there's one thing which is about success. And what happens if one partner is a lot more successful than the other? Because I think sometimes we think that's not going to be a great thing for marriage. And what I found was, first of all, if you think about the lifespan of our careers, there's always times where one person is doing really well and the other's just having a grind, right? They've got a bad boss, they're stuck in a rut. And when I say success, I'm not necessarily meaning who becomes the CEO. Like we're happy in our career, things are going great for us. And what I found when there's a big disparity between partners, they can make two mistakes. One is the person who's on the crest of the wave can feel like, I better not shout about it because I don't want the other person to feel bad. That's really devastating because their success is not being celebrated. And that can really breed resentment long term. Likewise, the opposite can happen that the person who's down and out can feel like I better put a brave face on and take it on the chin and just focus on the other person's success. Likewise, that's going nowhere. The couples who can really make it work when there's this discrepancy can both really celebrate the success of someone who does well, but also recognize the other person's in a tough spot and also recognize, you know what, the tables will turn at some point. Yeah, everything is a phase. Yeah, and, and, I think, and I think it's really important that couples realize it is possible to have wildly different career trajectories and still be fine if you can hold those two sides of the polarity. Ooh, such good advice. Yeah. And I always ask the same question at the end of every interview, yeah. which is if you could give all mothers in the world just one gift, what would that be and why? A full night's sleep every week. Aww. So I had, I have two wonderful children. They were not sleepers. We had four years with not a single sleep oh, through the whole night. It grinds you down, doesn't it? I had Grind two you years down. of that. Honestly, hell. one night's sleep a week. It's all I ask for, for all the mothers in the world. Yeah, gosh, that would make life a lot easier, wouldn't yeah. it? <laughs> oh, thank you so much. <laughs> and a big glass of wine. <laughs> so that's it. Thank you for listening to the episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. And if you did, please do leave a review on iTunes. It does make a massive difference to the number of mums that we can reach with this content. If you were listening to that episode, thinking about one of your friends that they might benefit from what we were chatting about then just tag them in on instagram my bio will include the link to the podcast so they can find it really easily from there people often tell me they're desperate to share it with their friends so if that's you then please do i feel like the guests that we have on the podcast their wisdom just deserves to be heard far and wide so help me make that happen i'd be very grateful 
And also, if you want to send me any comments or thoughts about the episode, then please pop over onto Instagram at motherkind underscore Zoe. And also, just to let you know about my coaching. So I do work one-on-one with mums on my programme which is a three-month program called Reconnect to You. So if you want to work with me on taking your power back in any area of your life, then please do get in touch. Just drop me an email, zoe at motherkind.co or look on the website, www.motherkind.co. That's it. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Take care. Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Nicole. And if you enjoy this show, you will love our podcast, Self Care Club. Every week, we trial a different form of self care and report back on the results. We've tried everything from cuddle therapy, setting boundaries, laughter yoga, and many more. Two friends who rarely agree on anything, testing out the world of self care so you don't have to. We've even written a book dedicated to self care practices that cost you nothing. You can listen to Self Care Club wherever you get your podcasts. Or to purchase our book, search Have You Tried This on Amazon. <laughs>